0: Welcome to episode 39 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is December 6th, and we're going to be a bit more reflective in this episode. We're going to talk about some broad questions concerning the discipline of history, and particularly the state of environmental history, and where the field may be going with one of, if not perhaps, the leading environmental historian today.
1: For the non-historians of the audience, I'll provide some context here. So disease history is, at least sometimes, considered as part of environmental history. And this is actually how I came to the field. So I started off in environmental history and moved, or focused, I guess, to disease history. And in the recent few years, maybe a decade or so, both pre-modern environmental history and pre-modern disease history have rapidly expanded, with lots of interesting research coming out very quickly, at least by historian standards.
0: Our guest today is John McNeil, who's the university professor at Georgetown University. He's a historian of environmental history, world and global history, and the Anthropocene, the period in which humankind has been significantly affecting Earth's geology and ecosystems. John is also the immediate past president of the American Historical Association, which is the umbrella history association for all historians in the United States.
1: John has published seven books and over 150 articles, many of which have shaped the field of environmental history. I'll just mention the three most recent books as examples of the areas in which he feels comfortable working. One is Mosquito Empire's Ecology and War in the Greater Caribbean, 1650 till 1914. This was published in 2010 and offers really a great way to blend disease ecology, disease and politics. Then we have The Great Acceleration, and Environmental History of the Anthropocene since 1945 from 2016. And most recently, the two-volume work, The Webs of Humankind, The World History, that this was published actually a couple of months ago in September 2020.
2: So hi, John. Hi, Lee. Hi, Merle. Thanks for the invitation today.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, John. As Lee just noted, we thought it'd be great to sit down and talk to John about some of the questions we actually talked to Susan Jones in the last part of the interview last week. So bigger questions about the development of environmental history in the past, and maybe some thoughts on the future, which John has actually written about earlier this year. And then also some of the theoretical, and as Lee loves the word, meta questions that we often discuss in our wrap-up segments at the end of various episodes.
1: Right, I think that's a good point, Moral. And we've touched upon a lot of the ideas we're going to talk about today in various segments in the past. And we thought it would be useful to bring John into the conversation to provide his perspective on questions such as how the discipline of history and the field of environmental history has been developing, the place of collaborative projects within the field and discipline, and maybe of most interest on a podcast how academic historians should engage with broader audiences. This last topic is actually one of the reasons why we started this podcast, which we felt well positioned to do because of our past experience. And maybe that will also come up in the conversation. But before we begin, let's catch up with each other and John with what's happening where we're at. So Merle, do you wanna start off?
0: Yeah, so I think things have been fairly the same as we caught up last week. It's getting colder. So this morning when I was out with my kids, it was about 40 Fahrenheit. So about five Celsius for you, And the only issue with that is my son uh, does not like anything on his arms. And so he pushes up his sleeves no matter what the temperature is. So by the end of like, you know, an hour walk, his arms are just like incredibly chapped and raw and red. So that's not ideal. And then of course he hates lotion. So, you know, God forbid. <laughs> Uh, he put that on. So that's kind of the one thing that's happening. The other thing is, as you may have noticed, Lee, I know we talk all the time is I've only grown a beard very briefly this winter. And that's because the mask that I now wore when I'm walking everywhere actually keeps me quite warm. So I don't feel like I need a beard as much. And I did grow a mustache temporarily shaving down the beard.
1: Wait, so you wear a beard because you want to keep your face warm?
0: Yeah, I think that's part of the reason. And usually sometime in November, December, I get tired of shaving every day. And so I turn it into a beard, which is easier to keep trim if I just do
1: one part. Very nice. Very nice. I
0: think you missed the stage, Lee, where I had for one day, I had mutton chops. My wife was appalled. And then I also shaved it from there into I don't know the technical name, but the I think of it as like that little French mustache where it's just like just above the upper lip that was pretty appalling too <laughs> so she made me get rid of that pretty quickly well
1: yeah i actually have not seen you in either of those forums and if i would have i would have probably screenshotted this and uploaded it somewhere so <laughs> thanks Lee. oh uh, yeah it. so
0: what about you lee are you having an election soon what's happening i mean this is your
1: government's collapsing again yeah i mean it, it seems like we're heading towards election we kind of passed through one important stage. It's still not 100% certain, but that's definitely where we're heading to. But actually, and a more interesting thing, at least in, in my very local perspective for this past week, was that my daughter's daycare teacher was found to be positive with COVID. And this is after her husband was positive with COVID. So they, they shut down the entire daycare. and. All the children are in our home with their parents for a couple of weeks, just to make sure every, everyone is okay. And My daughter was tested a few days ago, and she was found to be negative, so that's fortunate. And my wife and I have not been tested yet, but we are supposed to be tested very soon, as in maybe even during this interview. So if the interview ends in the middle, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, hopefully it won't happen, but yes.
0: And John, are you in D.C.? What's happening there?
2: Yeah, well, uh, geographically, I'm not all that far from you, Merle. I learned that my life is a good deal less exciting than either uh, of yours, partly because my kids are grown. Although once upon a time, one of my sons refused to wear uh, long sleeves or long trousers throughout the winter. It was one of those winters when we had a couple of feet of snow. He was undeterred. And um, all facial hair has been ruled out since the day I got married. My life is on a comparatively even keel compared to yours. DC, however, is as always in ructions of, uh, of political nature. I don't need to fill you in on those, uh, nor on the progress of the pandemic, which is the other major preoccupation here in DC.
1: How have you guys been dealing with a pandemic in Georgetown? Have you been teaching all online? Uh,
2: Almost all online. Uh, In my own case, I also have this semester been meeting one student in a tutorial one-on-one outdoors. Uh, We walk around the campus. It's almost like uh, Aristotle and the peripatetic school in Athens. Uh, And we do that because of a requirement for his uh, F1 visa, uh, a certain proportion of his instruction has to be uh, in person, so it is in person. But other than that, all my teaching has been online and almost all of my colleagues are in the same position and most of us will be in the spring semester again. Georgetown is one of the lucky campuses. We've not had a, a gigantic uh, outbreaks as some of the big uh, Midwestern state universities have had if I remember correctly, at the moment, between 100 and 200 members of the Georgetown community, students, staff, faculty, uh, have tested positive this semester.
0: Are all the students back on campus, or are they not Far from
2: it. Far from it. We had, if I remember correctly, approximately 500 students on campus. Normally, we have about 6,000 undergrads, most of whom are on campus. Uh, In the spring semester, we're going to double that and have 1,000 students on campus. Might be pushing the envelope a little bit. I hope nothing bad happens. And various difficult decisions have had to be made about who gets invited to campus and who doesn't. And naturally, there are opportunities for second guessing these decisions.
1: And what about grad students?
2: Grad student uh, instruction is entirely online and we don't have grad student housing on campus. So the grad students uh, find their own housing arrangements. A lot of them live uh, around the DC area. And um, most of the ones that I'm in touch with are in the DC area. Although a couple have uh, taken the opportunity to stay with family somewhere or be further afield for another reason. But I would guess about 80% of them are in DC as usual. But hold up in apartments instead of coming to campus.
0: Yeah, it seems pretty similar across the board.
1: Yep. So so let's begin with an interview. And maybe a good place to begin would ask you, John, to sketch briefly. field of environmental history. So what would be some of the major topics that environmental history, broadly speaking, covers?
2: Yeah, so I sketch this all the time because um, when I introduce myself to total strangers and say I'm a historian, and they ask me what kind of historian, and uh, unless I want a brief conversation, I answer truthfully and say I'm an environmental historian, and usually they say what's that? So here's what I say it is Um, environmental history as a self-conscious enterprise has been around for almost 50 years now. It seems to me to divide itself up into three broad categories, somewhat overlapping categories. One of these would be a biogeophysical environmental history that might be about forests or frogs or soil or for that matter, uh, the plague bacillus, but about things that are part of the environment and the human relationship uh, with those things. So that would be category number one. Category number two would be one that intersects with cultural and intellectual history. That is what people have thought and usually written about the natural world and the human relationship to it. And then the third category would be in the political realm. Uh, What kinds of policies, laws, administrative efforts have societies undertaken to try to regulate the relationship between the natural world and society? So three main categories, they all overlap to some extent.
0: And maybe over the last, say, 25, 30 years, have you seen one of those three become of more interest, other things fade in and out? How have you seen that, say, change over time, as historians always like to talk about?
2: So I would guess that if you made a study of this, which I have not done, that the cultural and intellectual variety of environmental history has waxed grown in popularity more than the other two to which I refer. Uh, And that could be connected to the the general cultural turn of the very late 20th century within history and the humanities and social sciences more generally. Uh, But it could be uh, independent of that.
1: And how does pre-modern history fit into this? Into your three part schema? Uh,
2: not as well as it should, by which I mean that the third one, the political and legal and administrative one, scarcely has a pre modern history. Environmental historians uh, may be aware that, yes, indeed, there were regulations that govern society's relationships with the environment a thousand years ago, but the number of people who are interested in these is very, very small. So, pre modern history scarcely figures in that uh, one of the three categories. And when it comes to cultural and intellectual environmental history, pre modern history does figure, but not nearly as prominently as it could. There's, there's a lot of textual material that hasn't really been mined. Uh, And most of that cultural and intellectual environmental history concerns the era of self-conscious environmentalism, which either we should date from the 1960s forward or maybe from the 1870s, 1880s forward. And that's where the bulk of the work, and when I say bulk of the work, I mean 90 plus percent uh, is done. When it comes to the first category, the biogeophysical, there, pre-modern history has a It will cast a longer shadow, I would say. Um, Although once again, I would say not as long as it could and perhaps should.
1: So the different studies that look at how the environment shapes or affects pre-modern societies, you would put that into the first category?
2: Yeah, I probably would. Um, That first category would include both Studies that emphasize the ways in which the environment has shaped society, and studies that emphasize the ways in which society has shaped the environment. And normally, both these things are going on at the same time.
1: So it seems as if there are actually, within the broader field of environmental history, there seems to be a pretty sharp distinction between, let's say, modern quote unquote environmental history and pre modern environmental history with regards to what each of these subfields, for lack of a better term, seems to be more focused
2: on? The way I see it in environmental history, modern dominates the pre-modern even more so than in the history discipline as a whole. And it does in the history discipline as a whole. But in environmental history, I would say that tendency is exaggerated. And part of that is because many environmental historians are interested in the cultural and intellectual movements associated with environmental consciousness and awareness. And that is a modern phenomenon. But also, many uh, have been and still are interested in uh, industrial pollution. And that, obviously, is also a modern phenomenon, not exclusively a modern phenomenon. We have, for example, the famous uh, example of Roman lead smelting, and it's uh, both local air pollution and long distance transported air pollution recorded in Arctic ice cores. But uh, examples like that are few and far between, and the bulk of the work undertaken by people interested in industrial pollution concerns the last hundred years. So in general, I think environmental history is, as I've said, more slanted towards the modern than the rest of the history discipline.
0: Yeah, I was actually, I don't know if bored is the right term, but I actually went through all the back issues of the Journal of Environmental History and all its earlier incarnations. And the percentage that were pre-modern was extremely low um, overall for the last, say, 40 years. You know, We're talking like 1% or something.
2: <laughs> uh, 1%. I, I was hoping it might be 5%, but you're probably right. Um, that, however, is somewhat of a biased sample because that journal, it's produced in the United States and especially in its early years, it was weighted towards the U.S. So if you looked at the British Journal, Environment, and History, I think you would probably find somewhat more than 1% of the articles dealing with pre-modern history, although I can't guarantee that. Yeah. And their journals produced, uh, for example, in Dutch, in Croatian, and I'm sure have a significantly larger proportion of pre in them.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's probably right. I think I just did one and then I decided I wasn't gonna keep going down that path because it took me like three hours one morning.
2: Yeah, well, you still wouldn't have found a whole lot, Merle.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So to ask maybe if you would prognosticate on where you think the field is going moving forward, how do you see it developing you know, in the next 10 years would be the last question in this arc, I guess we could say.
2: So the first thing I got to say is that my crystal ball is at least as occluded as anybody else's. And every time I predict the future, I am proven wrong. So here's what I think anyway. Uh, Firstly, as I wrote in... um, American Historical Review in January about the history discipline as a whole, I think that what I said there goes for environmental history uh, even more so, which is that the turn towards uh, non-textual sources is going to intensify in the foreseeable future. And I think this is more true of environmental history because, so far, it has been more true of environmental history than it has been of history as a whole. And it is, so to speak, natural for environmental historians to avail themselves of the kind of evidence about the past that they might find in pollen cores, ice cores, paleogenomic work, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think that's one trend that's going to intensify for environmental historians. A second one that I would expect to intensify is a turn towards climate history. I say this partly because we already see it going on and partly because the salience of climate concerns in the next 10, 30 years is only gonna increase. And when concerns in society as a whole increase, they tend to be reflected in the work of historians and other scholars. So those are the two main tendencies I would expect to see.
1: Could you maybe expand very briefly on what climate history is for our audience members who are maybe not familiar with that term?
2: Yeah, so climate history, for me, means the study of the ways in which climate shifts and shocks have affected societies and the way that societies have responded to those shifts and shocks. It's a little bit different than from what's sometimes called uh, historical climatology which is trying to reconstruct the climates of the past. And uh, these are allied efforts and some people do both at once and maybe there shouldn't be much of a distinction drawn between them. But for me, climate history is about what climate means for humans and how humans deal with what climate means for them.
1: So a lot of the questions that you've been mentioning or directions that this field discipline might turn to are pretty complex. And it seems to me that one of the potential trends that we might also see is it, it move towards more collaboration, both within the discipline, so with other historians, and also outside the discipline with scientists, let's say. What would be your take on this?
2: So I see a strong tension here. I'll begin with the logic of collaboration, which as you say, is pretty strong because if you're an environmental historian and you want to make use of paleogenomic data, but you don't have a PhD in genetics, you need help. I have found myself in this position. And the same is true, really, if you want to make proper use of palynology, that is the, the science of fossil pollen. It's a little easier to handle than paleogenomics, but it still has its pitfalls. And the ordinary historian needs help. So there's a lot of logic for collaboration, particularly with natural scientists. But on the other side of the ledger is the powerful traditional institutional expectations upon historians, at least in the academy. And I speak particularly about the academy in the US. I think these expectations take a different form in other parts of the world, and they may not be as restrictive in other parts of the world as they have been and I predict will remain for a while at least in the US. So what I'm alluding to here is the expectation that if you're going to make an academic career as a historian, you have a body of work with your own name on it and nobody else's name. So co-authorship is not part of the cultural and institutional tradition. I've done a fair bit of co-authorship it's got its advantages and its disadvantages, but when it comes to hiring, tenure, promotion, and also uh, beyond that, I I would say recognition within the profession, there is a powerful tradition of individual authorship and individual work. And that is not going to disappear overnight, whatever the logic for collaboration might be.
0: So what might be a way to balance those two things, you think? I mean, is one way to kind of what Lee and I have, where we each have our own projects that we do on our own, and then we also have our own projects that we do together? Is that one way that might be more acceptable as a midpoint to try to work between those two poles? Or are there other ways that might shift this aside from you know, radical ideas like abolishing everything that exists and overturning all institutional norms, which I don't think are about to happen anytime
2: soon. Uh, I don't think that's about to happen anytime soon either. Yeah, so there are probably at least two possible compromises. One is the one that you outlined, whereby Merle and Lee, you both co-author some things, but you also author a lot of stuff by yourselves and establish that uh, body of work, with your name on it that academic success almost requires. The other uh, possible compromise I can see is a stage of career compromise, whereby early on one establishes that body of work with one's own name on it in order to pass the hurdles that one needs to pass to maintain a successful academic career And then liberated uh, in mid-career, one can explore all kinds of different options, including collaboration with fellow historians, collaboration with natural scientists or others, and also other kinds of um, formats for the presentation of scholarship. So books, articles are not the only way to communicate. Here, we are working on a podcast, and the two of you put a lot of effort into your podcast. That, too, is a form of scholarship. It's probably not recognized as such in many quarters. And if you were to make documentaries or curate websites, this also might be scholarship, but not recognized as scholarship in some quarters. Um, These things are more securely explored at uh, a later stage in an academic career than at the outset of an academic career.
1: Do you know how the parallel process happened in the sciences? So when did the sciences start transitioning from a single author model to a co-authorship model? Why did it happen and how long did it take?
2: I don't know the answer for sure, but my suspicion is that the big push came in the two decades after the Second World War. And the reason for that would be the so-called rise of big science. It became more expensive, more complex, in some cases more interdisciplinary, more project-based. And in that set of circumstances in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, Formal collaboration and formal co-authorship gradually, within 20, 30 years, uh, became the norm in most precincts of science. I speak now of the United States. I'm not sure uh, whether the same would be true in Japan, in Russia, in Europe, uh, in India. I really don't know at all.
1: Okay, so to bring the discussion maybe a bit backwards to your definition of environmental history, and maybe history more broadly, so what would you see as the limits to history as a discipline? Are there periods or sources or questions that are outside the boundaries? Or maybe big history, double quotes, so, so the view from the Big Bang until today, can that still be part of history? Of History, I guess, with A capital B and a capital H.
2: Big history. I have read the big historians and I find what they say interesting. Uh, For me, it counts as history if human beings are involved. And so most of the history of the universe is not history for me. And most of the history of life on Earth is not history for me. I concede that things that happened 14 billion years ago in the universe affect human beings today. Our bodies wouldn't be what they are. And I accept that things that happened in the history of life on Earth 500 million years ago affect human history. But I still don't think they are part of human history, or part of history, unless there are humans involved. I think history is approximately 300,000 years old since the emergence of homo sapiens sapiens on this earth and it extends so far only to the earth and to a few extraterrestrial expeditions of the last 60 years.
0: So, you kind of hinted at something I'm curious about, and I asked Susan, our guest, last week about this, and I reflected upon it afterwards. But how does agency work in our narratives, or how would you position agency in our narratives? So, should, you know, at a basic level, non human actors such as animals or rats or bacteria have agency to start with, and then I'll follow up from there maybe.
2: Obviously, it all depends on what we mean by agency, but as far as I'm concerned, rats, rocks, uh, climate can bend the arc of history just as much as the Emperor Justinian or Winston Churchill or the proletariat or uh, ExxonMobil, so yeah, for me, my definition of agency is having an impact that doesn't have to be conscious. So rats, rocks, climate do have historical agency as far as I'm concerned. And it's fine to write narratives that recognize that. That said, a great deal depends on one's subject matter. If one's writing intellectual history, then rats and rocks don't have much agency. And really only people might properly be understood as having agency. But if one is writing environmental history about the way that societies interact with the natural world, or if one is writing disease history, the history of medicine, well, yeah, then non-human actors probably do have and should be recognized as having agency.
1: So within this discussion, how do you avoid environmental determinism when treating all these non-human actors? And if they do have agency, how do you mitigate that agency with human agency? Or how how do you combine the two?
2: I don't think it's all that difficult. The way that I I did this most um, directly and consciously was in the book that you referred to at the beginning, Lee, Mosquito Empires, where I attributed to certain species of mosquitoes and to certain pathogens, particularly those that cause yellow fever and malaria, attributed to them agency in shaping the international politics of the greater Caribbean in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. But the way that these mosquitoes and pathogens affected human affairs was at the same time shaped by human structures and even human decisions. I argued, for example, in a view that as far as I'm aware, nobody other than myself has endorsed that malaria had a significant role in shaping the outcome of the American Revolution in 1780 and 1781. But in order for malaria to have that impact, certain decisions had to be made. The British uh, high command, if we can use that term, in the American Revolution had to decide to move the bulk of its land forces to South Carolina and to try to wage the war uh, in the Carolinas, the so-called Southern strategy, totally different from Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. And had the British not done that, then mosquitoes and malaria would not have had the opportunity to have any impact on the American Revolution. And similarly, had Washington and Rochambeau not decided to move their forces as fast as they could from New York and New England south to Yorktown, then the fact that malaria was rampant amongst the British Army at Yorktown would have been neither here nor there. So there is a co-evolution between the non-human actors and the human actors in shaping the outcomes that we call history. I don't see that as environmentally determinist. I don't see it as human determinist. I see it as a proper recognition of the complexity of causation.
1: And what about broader effects such as climate that we've mentioned earlier?
2: Climate has its impacts, particularly anomalous shifts or brief shocks that human societies are uh, not habituated to. That's when climate is at its most important. But at the same time, human societies, when confronted with a shock, whether it's a hurricane or a particularly cold winter or a cold three or four years in a row or uh, drought, human societies always have their responses, which may be more or less effective, uh, more or less catastrophic. The drought, the cold snap, uh, the hurricane you know, by itself it does not alone shape outcomes. It does so in conjunction with human response and in conjunction with previously established human preparedness or lack of preparedness.
0: Do you think that there is a sense, because I often get the sense that the farther back in time you go, the easier it is to, you know, make, say, climate into a driver of change alone without, you know, a human element involved? I mean, your discussion, for example, of Yorktown was very specific and makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, something like that I've never seen as an argument, partially it's a source thing for, say, pre-modern history. It's less common, I should say.
2: Yeah, I would say that that is true for climate and it's true for environmental forces as drivers uh, in general. And the main reason I think that that is true, I would put the following way. The less evidence we have about a particular time and place, the more we are inclined to attribute the trajectory of history as we understand it, to climatic or environmental factors. Uh, Partly because they are often retrievable when little to nothing else is retrievable. This is not exclusively, but mainly uh, an artifact of the last few decades of work in the paleo-sciences that has allowed us to entertain pretty robust hypotheses about past climate, including episodes of um, extended drought uh, and other anomalies. And with that information, but without any other information, or with very little other information, the temptation is hard to resist to attribute greater significance to climatic factors or environmental factors. But 50 years ago, when we didn't have the paleo science that we have now, the temptation to do so was weaker. It was not absent. And even 100 years ago, people were advancing climatic explanations for the rise and fall of this or that, although usually with much, much weaker data. Ellsworth Huntington is the most famous example of this in the English language but he was not alone.
1: So let's pivot here and maybe talk a bit more about the role of historians in broader society let's say. Should historians engage broader audiences? Assuming the answer is either overwhelmingly yes or maybe a bit more reserved yes. What would be the best ways to do that than maybe when, perhaps in one's career or some other context?
2: My answer is a reserved yes in the following sense, that at any given time, some historians should be addressing general public. It doesn't mean that every historian should be doing this. Some of us are not cut out for it. Some of us are better suited for it. Some of us are experts in subjects that the broader public will never be interested in. Some of us are experts in things that the broader public is relentlessly fascinated by. So uh, I think there's no uh, prescription that should be extended to the entire historical profession. But I do think it's important that some historians at all points in time are writing for the general public. I think it's important for historians, it's good for the history profession if the general public thinks that history is interesting and the only way for the general public to think that is if some historians are writing for the general public. But I also think it's good for society at large if there is historical understanding, historical knowledge injected into public discussion, whether that discussion is about pandemics, whether it is about elections and the preservation of democracy, whether it is about matters of war and peace. I think all of these things and every other agenda item in public policy benefits from historical awareness, historical understanding, historical knowledge.
1: And would you see this involvement, this engagement with the broader public as being mostly through a written format, as in books, articles, op-eds, essays, and so on? Or would things such as in popular culture, as in movies or other formats, such as this podcast, for example, would you think those are still feasible and valuable or as feasible and valuable in educating the broader public, that is?
2: For most historians, myself included, writing comes more easily than expression of our views in other media. And so books and magazine articles and op-eds, that's certainly one way to achieve what I think some historians ought always to be trying to achieve. But given that the media marketplace is being transformed in the 21st century and all sorts of new media are increasingly important and some not so new, such as movies, I think it's advisable in both the senses that I outlined a moment ago, good for the historians and good for society at large, if historians are getting their messages out in all manners possible. Now I wrote a piece when I was president of the American Historical Association about the movies and uh, how frustrated I am at uh, movies that go to great uh, lengths to get the costumes right and the cars right and the guns right from a certain period in the past, but are horribly irresponsible uh, in some other respects. And of course, movies are entertainment. They're not works of history. But still, I would like to see, among many other things, that the movie industry could uh, consult more carefully with historians and not get things needlessly wrong. I understand the principle of aiming for the dramatic and the compelling and make a movie uh, a good movie. But when that doesn't require butchering the historical record, then there's no need to butcher the historical record. And yet movies do this all the time.
1: So this actually leads into another question I had on this, which is Okay, so, so let's actually stay with the written format, which is one of our, us as historians, one of our strengths. I would argue that, let's say in the past few decades at least, there has been increasing or increased, increasing competition from non-historians in this field, let's say. And maybe the best example that comes to my mind is Jared Diamond, who writes about history or about historical topics. It is not a historian. He is influential, and he has shaped many historians and a fair amount of the general public. How would you understand this, and what would be some of the ways that historians could make their point, so to speak?
2: I'm not absolutely sure that it is only in the last couple of decades that non-historians have competed successfully with historians to present the past to broader audiences, I don't know for sure. But I would say, first of all, I have no particular objection to this. Sometimes insights come from people who are not trained to think in the established furrows. I think this happens, by the way, all the time within the historical profession. People who are, you know, let's say outsiders to Middle East history might have a greater probability of seeing things in a different way than people who are well-versed and thoroughly trained in it. And obviously, this would go for not just Middle East history, but every kind of history. And so more broadly, outside the historical profession, I think non-historians can sometimes uh, do us a big favor. Uh, with their interventions. At the same time, uh, you know, frequently they get some things wrong and specialists, including myself, complain. And I've complained about Jared Diamond, but I've also learned from Jared Diamond. I regard him as not only among the more successful in a commercial sense, but also among the more provocative and interesting of the non-historians writing about history. And I'll say one more thing about this. I think that one of the arenas in which the non-historians are uh, particularly active is big picture history because historians as a tribe are often a bit shy about big picture history. And for reasons that uh, I think the two of you well understand because you have been known to criticize practitioners of big picture history for getting some things wrong. And that obviously will happen, whether it's historians or whether it's Jared Diamond. But the historical profession has, I think, a preference for the detailed narratives built from the ground up with a careful analysis of primary sources. And I admire that. I've tried to do it myself from time to time. But that means that we leave the field more open to outsiders, often journalists, who want to present the grand narrative that we typically do not wish to present.
0: Could I ask, I guess, one more question that is in this same vein, but also builds on some other questions we've talked about, which is, Do you see ways in which we can build this skill set, which is to say, speaking to more public audiences, whether it be via podcasts, via press outreach? I mean, that's one thing I'm particularly interested in is how do we as historians reach out to press and, and get our ideas out there as much as, say, the sciences, if that's possible. But then also combine this with, you know, a recognition and a knowledge that the history profession, the classic, you know, tenure track, position is obviously less robust than it was 30, 40 years ago. So are there ways we can perhaps keep younger scholars in the field and in the fold, but also build this new skill set so that we have more people practicing history and it will be maybe a win-win for, say, both younger scholars and for the broader
2: public? If we could build that skill set that is engaging the public in any number of new media formats, then we would have a better bet, a better chance at keeping more historians active and employed. Although Merle, I gotta say tenure track positions were not all that robust even 30, 40 years ago. 50 years ago, yes, but the real sustained Uh, crisis started in the mid 1970s. That aside, I think the scenario that you sketch likely begins with training and building the skill set early on in the education of a historian and learning to be comfortable exploring new platforms other than the essay or the book that can hook larger audiences and yet at the same time maintain most ideally all of the scholarly rigor not to say punctiliousness that characterizes the existing academic historical profession. But I would think it has to begin with encouraging young people to get their work out in a variety of formats, and training them so that they're comfortable getting their work out in a variety of formats. And I would say at present, that doesn't happen very much. Young people can learn it on their own, but if they're going to learn it, that's the way they're going to learn it.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right for how we did this podcast, which is we went to a few people and asked and learned along the way and then now I've had at least five or six other people come to me and ask me specifically how do you start doing this
2: and I
1: right. chuckled.
2: Merle I've been meaning to ask you how do I get my own podcast series? It's
1: a good question.
2: <laughs> Just kidding. Well
0: one of your colleagues Dagomar has a great podcast that I really enjoy on yes. climate history. So.
2: I'm keenly aware of it. And I'm delighted that he's able to keep it up together with all the other things that he gets done while having two small children in his apartment.
0: Yeah, I listened to, uh, I think, the most recent episode, and I heard yelling kids in the background. It made me feel much better since my kids come to this podcast, as our listeners know.
1: Okay, so before wrapping things up, at least part of the discussion here was about different divisions and subdivisions within the discipline, and even specifically within the field of environmental history. And as someone who's working as part of this discipline, it seems to me that the discipline is, for lack of a better term, fragmenting or fracturing. Do you think there is any possibility that the discipline would recoalesce? And that's, of course, assuming that it was ever more integrated than it is now, which you might want to answer that as well. Or maybe is the, this drift into, again, more and more specialization and more and more sub-disciplines one way?
2: So there was a time, at least in um, the U.S., and I think it was true uh, elsewhere as well, when the historical discipline was more coherent and less fragmented by subspecialization. But that was mainly a time when history was understood more narrowly than it is now. And Africa didn't have a history. And Asia's history was part of Oriental Studies curricula based more on language, literature, and religion. Since uh, history has broadened geographically and also broadened thematically so that not only is there political history, but there is social history, economic history, environmental history, women's and gender history, etc. cetera. These are, I think, properly understood as enrichments, but they do mean fracture within the discipline. If I'm right that in the future historians, not just environmental historians, but historians in general, will more often be working together with paleo scientists, then the discipline is gonna get even more fractured. I think that is the stronger likely trend in the future and it's not unique to history. I think you can see the same thing uh, in biology, which used to be much more coherent 100 years ago than it is now and also anthropology. But be that as it may, I hope that at the same time, there will at least be a small undertow to this wave that I foresee, an undertow in which bringing it all together into uh, coherent grand narratives will survive and indeed flourish. And I would like to see historians doing that and not leaving it exclusively to journalists and other outsiders, whether it's Jared Diamond, or anybody else. I think this is important, even though I recognize grand narratives are always going to be imperfect uh, in their details, and they will privilege some subjects at the expense of others, they will have defects. But if there are no grand narratives, are no historians prepared to try to bring it all together and Dabble as admitted amateurs in most, if not all of the fractured zones of the historical profession, then I think our prospects for uh, Maintaining interest from the larger public will suffer and that's something that I do not wish to see
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good note to conclude on as something Lee and I are, as you know, John, struggling with trying to come up with our own grand narrative uh, moving forward. And I think you're absolutely correct, as I've told Lee, and we've discussed many times that exact point. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really wonderful.
2: Again, uh, Merle and Lee, thanks for inviting me onto your show.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure.
0: So I thought that was a really useful and wonderful episode to really bring out some of the meta questions that we've talked about throughout most of these episodes, especially in these reflective segments.
1: I think one of the things we've mentioned, I've mentioned a few times in the past is that we actually would want to, or maybe need to kind of step back for a moment and kind of, rethink, reflect on where we are, maybe as a discipline, as a field, as a podcast. So today was maybe an an overview or reflection of where the field of environmental history is, broadly speaking. And I thought that was very useful for me to at least frame the question in maybe some different ways than I've been used to doing myself.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting, certainly, is you and I come at this as environmental historians, right, rather than historians of medicine, or historians of science, which are, to some extent, even less common, I would say, in the pre 1000 period for
1: certain, than environmental historians are. In a sense, we're both outsiders to the field. Neither of us has been trained as an environmental historian, and we actually kind of moved into, or were pushed into, or were drawn into this field at the end of our graduate studies. Well, actually, Lee, I have a leg up on you because I
0: took an environmental history class with a certain Tim Newfield, who is now a colleague of John's at Georgetown, and so I actually have some type of formal environmental history training.
1: So I win. Yeah, you always win, <laughs> but but you took this out of curiosity, right? I mean, it didn't really feature in any of your early work or any of your early thinking. It's just something you wanted to do to better understand what all these people are talking about. Yeah. I mean, I took it because
0: I'd never taken something like this and then I didn't use it for two or three years.
1: Yeah, I'll actually, I remember an anecdote from that. So one time when, when you came out of that class and I think you emailed me or something and told me it whatever context, and you told me, oh, you know, all the evidence we have, all the, the DNA evidence we have, or the Justinianic plague, are these two graves somewhere in Germany, and you're very excited about that, even early on. Well, I'll tell my own story now, which is,
0: I gave a talk at Georgetown last year, as you know, and when Tim, who invited me, introduced me, and John was in the audience for this, actually tim's opening anecdote and i didn't remember this was apparently at some point in the middle of the class i you know told him man i don't understand this environmental history stuff and why anyone cares and now (laughs) lo and behold here's what i'm doing
1: this obviously amused Tim to no end yeah no i mean i think it shows that again actually also ties into a discussion we've had that these classes that we may think are useless at some point or when we take them Some of them actually have latent effects, so to speak, right? They can affect us years down the road.
0: Yeah. I mean, I thought one of the really good points that, you know, John brought up and I've just alluded to is the importance of good stories, right? I mean, I think that's something I learned implicitly from a lot of my teachers and is something that I'm very keen on, as you know, Lee, in terms of coming up with a new grand narrative of plague.
1: Yeah, that that actually makes me think, right? So you just said that you learned about good stories implicitly. Maybe there is room to be more explicit about telling better stories. I mean, this this is something you like to say, but I'm not sure most or many historians would see their work as doing that. Maybe more so these days than in previous times, but still, I'm not sure if the majority of people would see themselves as telling stories. Well,
0: I think it goes to the tension that John alluded to, through numerous questions, right? Especially the collaboration question, obviously, that we asked him. But you're taught, or at least I was taught, I don't want to speak for you, that your first book, right, should be a grounded study, as John put it from the bottom up, extremely analytical, going through the sources, you know, especially in a medieval context, showing your chops, you know, how to use your languages, you know, how to use your archeology, span you know, how to show that you understand the historiography of what's really a massive, you know, four or 500 year historiography, whatever it might be, that's how we're really trained is to be very careful in the beginning. And then only later you're allowed to basically branch out and do all these public things or bigger histories.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. That's definitely part of this.
0: I mean, that's why I asked him in particular about building up new sorts of training, right? Whether it be particular skill sets, media outreach, press release, writing, that kind of stuff, or building out podcast hosting or other things like that, right? I mean, that is a skill set that I think people in our generation should learn as early as possible.
1: Yeah, so here I agree with you, but I think there are several things we need to keep in mind. And I'm not sure anyone has a comprehensive answer to these questions, right? But one issue is that training is already pretty long, right? So when I started grad school, training was five years, at least. I think it kind of is shifting to six years now, but it's still a substantial amount of time in which at least a fair amount of people and maybe some, many, most universities are funded. So that's one issue. I mean, just the fact that there's not enough time. Now, the second issue is that the people who are teaching us, so the generations above us, usually don't have these skills themselves, right? So we've had some people who do have podcasts. There aren't many of them. And they, at least in my impression, they tend to skew younger than older. Yeah, I don't disagree with you on either one of those points, but I do think there are
0: mechanisms of addressing it, right? Whether it be at a university level, and I know this is something that Princeton's built up recently is podcasting to try to get grad students into that if that's something of interest. So that's one level. You could bring in outside people like us, right? I wouldn't mind being paid to come in and tell people how to do podcasts. (laughs) I'm sure you'd be really upset about that Lee. And then you could do a third level, which would be these associations, right? So John was president of the American Historical Association. So they could take this up as one of their things is do media
1: trainings in various ways. Yeah, but in what way would that be, right? So, I mean, the history profession in the United States is actually decentralized, right? There's no real central decision-making. There might be a central voice that could recommend or suggest ways forward. But at the end of the day, the decisions are being made by departments and really universities across the nation. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I was
0: just trying to offer some off-the-cuff possibilities, and all these things would have to be explored. So none of these issues are new. I read the Presidential Address in 1981 by Bernard Bailyn, who's this great early American historian, who you may or may not know late. He just passed away earlier this year, and his complaint is that the field of history is fracturing, and no one really knows what's happening in all these subfields anymore.
1: No, that's fair, and that's really how I feel. I mean, I feel that within the discipline, I have less and less in common with other historians, and actually have more in common with non-historians who work on maybe similar timeframes or topics. Maybe to bring things back to the previous point you had about ways to, to overcome the training issue is maybe twofold, right? So one might be that career services would actually be the way forward as opposed to departments. And another is that, and this is really a call to all historians in training, I'd say. I mean, that historians and training should be more proactive and and just look for opportunities themselves and try to find those opportunities and not expect anyone to spoon feed them you because it's not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's another possible avenue, whether
0: it be career services. And I think that's the right attitude to have. The question is, will any of this happen? Or will this just be us speculating (laughs) on our own (laughs) podcast? But that's (laughs) for a different day. That's That's fair. So As we conclude this episode, Lee, do you know what starts at the end of this week? It's a
1: major holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, actually it is It is Hanukkah. So Hanukkah is right around the corner. So can I ask you one
0: small question first and then we can transition to a bigger one. What kind of menorah do you
1: have? So we have a fairly common menorah, I'd say. I mean, not anything special. Broadly speaking, based on my experiences in both the United States and Israel, the type of menorah you have matters a bit more in the United States than here in Israel. I mean, you would make menorahs at school, for example, and then just like bring that home and light it, and that should be fine. So that's one thing. And another thing is that there are more public lightings of menorahs here. I mean, both in workplaces, obviously the university, but also across the city here in Jerusalem, that's more or less it's here. I would also say that, I mean, you mentioned that Hanukkah is a major holiday. If you want to measure major holidays based on days off in university. So for example, on Passover, we get two weeks off. And some of the other holidays we also get off. The high holidays are out of the year. I mean, the year starts late because of the high holiday. So you actually you have that entire period off. Hanukkah is like an eight day holiday. and you get one day off. So it's not it's not a major holiday here, just saying. If you couldn't tell, Leo, I was being highly sarcastic
0: when I made that remark.
1: <laughs> okay, whatever. What about you I mean, what menorah do you have? Do you still have the dinosaur candlesticks?
0: Yeah, so we actually have, I think at least three if not four menorahs. Yeah. I think in my house growing up, we had like seven or eight so that everyone could light a lot of candles. It was very
1: competitive. So how would you compete? I and mean, who has the nicest menorah? Who's who lights fastest? Who like whose candles last longest? I mean, how do you compete with no, menorah lighting? Everyone would get at least two menorahs
0: if I remember correctly. So you'd all have one that you like made, then you'd all have one that was yours. So there'd be like eight or ten menorahs or something ridiculous when I was growing up.
1: So you'd probably be very excited about this holiday. They
0: yeah, get to light candles, but. Our menorah now, is, as you pointed out, is a menorahsaurus. So it's a T-Rex with the candles going up the back. <laughs> it's very exciting. My
1: kids really like it, so. Well, I, I can understand why. I actually saw these. How did you call them? You, you said like a Tyrannum. Menorahsaurus. Menorahsaurus, yeah. So I've actually seen these menorahsauruses, and they're actually very nice. So I'll give you that, bro. I'll give you that. They
0: were... Actually, a wedding present from one of our previous guests, AJ. Oh, I did not know that. (laughs) There you go. And then as well, for Hanukkah, we're going to have our pod mates over since they're not Jewish and make latkes and stuff.
1: That seems to be like the default evenings for you guys these times. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Well, glad for you guys. Well, I guess that on this uh, more holiday-oriented note, we can probably conclude this episode. And as usual, we'd like to thank the LePage Center for funding this podcast. And of course, thanks to our sound editor, Cameron Chertavian, and our webmaster, Erdrich Kanetti. Until next time,
0: stay safe, stay socially distanced, and let us know what kind of manure you have.